Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Well, hello and welcome, everybody. My name is Anna Markland, and I am the Head of Innovation and Change here at the RSA, and I'll be your chair for the discussion today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dacha Keltner. Welcome, Dacha. Nice to be with you, Anna. Uh, well, let me introduce you before we dive in. So Dacha is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. He is a renowned expert in the science of human emotion and was a consultant to Pixar's Inside Out. Dr. Keltner studies compassion and awe, as well as issues of power, status, inequality, and social class. He is also the author of a new book, or The Transformative Power of Everyday Wonder, which will be the subject of our conversation today. If you're watching along live, we'd love to get you involved in the live chat. Please do share your thoughts and comments. And if you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag RSA Wonder. Brilliant. Well, um, we've got a lot of questions and a lot that I'd love to discuss with you. Uh, I've just finished the book and I found it such great framing for starting the new year. Uh, but I have to say, initially, it all struck me as a very big emotion that I wouldn't expect to find often in my life. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you, Daha. How should listeners think about it, and um, what is the kind of definition of awe? Yeah, we—that's the best place to start. Um, awe is the feeling that you have when you encounter vast mysteries uh, out in your world, um, when your current knowledge structures can't make sense of what you're perceiving. Right? Uh, we've done a lot of work to add some nuance and context and detail. To that definition, we gathered stories of awe from 26 different countries, which are very prominent in the book and really influenced how I think about awe. And importantly for our, our people listening, um, what we've charted is kind of eight different kinds of wonders, I call them, that bring us awe, right? Philosophers write about the intentional object of the emotion. What is this feeling I have about awe? Um, and so that research tells us that awe is really about uh, the moral beauty of other people, their kindness and courage, collective movement and effervescence, right? You're at a football match and you are cheering for Arsenal or whatever it is. Um, you're out in nature, you know, and you just, you just see the wonders of nature. Then we get to cultural sources of awe, which are music, visual art, and contemplative spiritual practice. And then finally, it's interesting, Anna, you know, and, and I think this is very prominent in the humanities, uh, as we define them in the United States, which is that we find awe in epiphanies, big ideas that just shake us, you know, oh my God, you know, just like my mom or whatever it is. Uh, and then life and death. Uh, it's a pretty deep human universal to feel awe about the beginning of life and then the life cycle and how it ends. So to start us off, Anna, awe is about vast mystery. Uh, for those who really are interested in the sublime, uh, Edmund Burke, the great philosopher from Ireland, wrote a brilliant book about uh, the sublime, you know, that it's about bigness, power, and obscurity or, or mystery. And then I think to anchor a conversation or thinking about all, we have to think about where am I finding it? What is, what am I perceiving? What am I in relation to? And that's where the eight wonders come in. I love that. Um, really nice drop of Arsenal as well. I see you've done your research on UK <laughs> culture as well. Um, I'd love to to ask you then, uh, Daha, what brought you to awe? And yeah. what kind of made you want to share this, this book with us? Yeah, 
You know, when you write a book, uh, you have many different reasons to write a book, pay the bills, you know, advance your scholarship, et cetera. And this one was really personal. Um, the I was uh, raised in a childhood of awe. Um, I grew up, my dad's an artist, a visual artist, Richard Keltner. My mom taught romanticism and Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence and, and, and was just filling the house with quotes that were about the sublime, you know, William Blake and the like, Walt Whitman. And so, and, and I grew up um, in the late 1960s in Laurel Canyon, which was, there was a lot of awe, <laughs> you know, in the rock and roll and Joni Mitchell and the doors and the like in that area. And then, and then grew up to, in the country after that and wandered a lot of hills and mountains. So I had this childhood that was just filled with awe. Uh, and, and then uh, scientifically, um, you know, I do a lot of work in, the, in promoting well-being through the advances in the science of human emotion. And as I surveyed the benefits of awe, right, less stress, greater perspective, more sense of connection, better cardiovascular profile, reduced inflammation in the body. I was like, coming out of the pandemic where depression has risen 30%, uh, to, to give away awe where we can find it anywhere is, is uh, uh, a good thing to be promoting. It's a powerful emotion for our minds and bodies. And then, you know, finally, and um, I wrote this during a period of grief, um, my younger brother, Rolf, who I was very close to, shared almost everything with, passed away. And watching him die was this mysterious, transcendent, horrifying, awe-inspiring experience. But then I became aweless. I really could not, couldn't find joy or awe. And uh, here I am, I'm this awe scientist. And I was like, I got to go find it. You know, I got to really find my way again. Um, and, and so that led to this book. Well, I wanted to say thank you for sharing the personal story as well as the, the science behind it, yeah. um, which, which I'd love to dive into a little bit more because sure. I don't think I realized um, that you can track or yeah. uh, in, in a rigorous way. Uh, and I'd love to hear a little bit around, you know, what what. Uh, does it feel like to have or embodied what's the experience mm. of that and how have you tried to make sense of that through language through studying the body mm. and anything else yeah thank you Anna what a terrific question you know it's really interesting um that there, there's this long history of writing about awe right in spiritual writing Julian of Norwich and you know nature writing psychedelic writing all over the place people are William Wordsworth trying to capture the experience of awe or the sublime. Uh, and at the same time, there's this deep skepticism that we can actually capture it because it's this ineffable, unknowable thing. <clears throat> and it turns out in the science of emotion where we study emotions like anger and fear and laughter and pride and compassion, awe is actually really easy to study in the mind and body. And I'll, I'll just walk through how it manifests you encounter something vast and mysterious, right? I just saw coming in here, we're having these incredible storms and these, this, this horizon filled with clouds was something I haven't seen in a while. And it, it stuck out as awe-inspiring. Um, and what happens is, you know, your sense of self really gets quiet. You feel humble. 
um, you feel aware of vast things that you're part of, right? That are sort of like a system, like, oh, I'm, wow, there's this big ecosystem that I'm feeling. Um, you, in the body, uh, and, you know, Walt Whitman, who's one of my heroes, wrote, uh, and he, he poses this rhetorical question, if the soul is not in the body, where is the soul? And his writing is all about like embodied spirituality and soul. And indeed, you know, awe has these amazing embodied responses of you have these special tears, right? That just suddenly you see the kindness of somebody and you're like, wow, I'm crying. I don't even know these people. It's on TV and I'm crying, you know. Um, you get a lump in the throat. You have the chills or the goosebumps, which we've studied in our lab, that are part of this whole fascinating phenomenon of ASMR, you know, where suddenly you get these rushes of goose tingles up your back uh, that have been written about a lot in spiritual traditions. And then your heart feels warm and that's the vagus nerve that kind of slows the heart, makes you feel open to the world. So I think Whitman's right, you know, um, we have this amazing evolved capacity to shut down the self, open our minds, get curious, and the body just shifts out of this narrow fight or fight focus, focus to, I want to I wanna be open to the world, right? I want to understand it and connect to it. So the body of awe is, is fascinating. And thanks for asking about it. I love that. I um I wanted to pick up on on the way that you talk about in the book and what you just said there, where all leaves us to a new state where the self dissolves. Can you say a little bit around how you've then seen people react in this new state? You know, for forty years, sociologists fifty years have been saying this is the era of narcissism, right? Self focus, individualism. The, the globalized West is more individualistic than ever before. Um, we go out and take selfies. The new digital technologies only get us to think about the self more. And, and you know, recently clinical psychologists have been saying that this is a problem, that self-focus makes us ruminate. It makes us anxious. It makes a lot of people way too critical of themselves, right? They're harsh on themselves, shame and the like. And awe quiets all of that down, right? Our studies show, you know, Anna, like you go stand near a big tree, you look at a view, you listen to some inspiring music, you watch BBC Earth, lots of sources of awe, right? Suddenly you will draw an image of yourself that's smaller. You will, when you're asked to, to fill in the stem, I am, you don't mention individualizing characteristics, you mention shared characteristics. Um, and what it feels like, and we've only begun to understand, but that freedom from the self, from awe is liberating. Your imagination opens up. You are less anxious and narrow and much more broad and holistic in how you look at the world, right? And it's good for your body. So I, you know, we zeroed in on the small self of awe early because we're such a self-focused culture, and here's a an emotion that that turns us into a, a, a turns us to a different state. I'm definitely going to revisit that just for those who are listening who maybe are curious about the science, as I was. Were there any new ways of studying that you had to come up with for this, or <laughs> were you relying a lot on kind of the psychology of other emotions? 
Yeah, you know, this required a lot of new science, you know, and it's funny because um, I took some half-hearted efforts at studying awe scientifically. There were failures, you know, I'd bring young people into a lab and they look at a big screen of fractals, you know, and they're like, what is this, you know? And you had, we had to really uh, do a couple of very innovative things. Uh, you know, first of all, um, like, you know, when William James, the great philosopher, was asked to give a talk in Edinburgh about the nature of religious experience, uh, which became the varieties of religious experience, he, he, he grappled with the question, how do I capture the mystical? And he quickly said, I've got to, I've got to get people stories, stories, right? I typically in my career work with measures and physiology and brain patterns and statistics. And as I was looking at the, you know, the studies of goosebumps and small self we've talked about, I was like, this doesn't get the, the holistic gestalt of awe. And, you know, and so in the book, I not only, we gathered 2,600 stories from around the world to tell us, wow, what is all like in Russia or China or Brazil or Mexico? Um, uh, the, but I also gathered personal stories. I, I found people, musicians and ministers and people in prison, just to give us the stories of awe. And I think, you know, frankly, that's where the experience is. That's where you really understand it. Not awe is 6.2 on an awe scale, rather it's the metaphor and dynamic flow of the words. And, and then the second thing that we did, and it was really fun, and I credit my graduate students, you know, is we just went to awe spots and studied people. What are people doing when they're near Yosemite or looking out at a giant view or standing next to a T-Rex skeleton? You know, we just did all these fun, uh, what we call in vivo experiments. And now people are studying, you know, awe at festivals and mosh pits and football games. And, you know, so, so we had to do, we had to get out of the lab and go, go where awe is. I yeah that's a research field study I can definitely get behind all spots um what well what does then the research say about who is experiencing or and I guess you know potentially though that I came with a maybe hypothesis that it was limited to those who had the means to access these all spots who could afford to go on an incredible holiday or come to you know a life-changing music festival uh but i i know from the book that that's not quite the case so i'd love to hear yeah who who is experiencing all well all of us it's a very human emotion it's i think it's in some sense the most human of emotions but thank you for the question anna you know the when you do research and i think this is why we do research we have these assumptions about things like gender or power or emotion and then we go gather data right and and there are assumptions or cultural stereotypes about emotion and one of the the stereotypes about emotion about awe is it's it's really for the privileged it requires a rarefied view of life it requires a lot of resources right i gotta hop on my private plane and fly to the barrier reef and scuba with my kids. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it turns out that's wrong. You know, we find um, the first thing is people who uh, have less money or resources or fewer resources feel more awe on a regular basis, right? So that tells us whatever you want to make of the class implications of that, that awe doesn't need money. 
It doesn't need resources, right? You can go find it. The second one, and I, I feel, Anna, this almost is the most important finding in the whole book is everyday awe or everyday wonder. You know, we surveyed people. Here's what we did. We went to China and Japan and Spain and the US and other countries. Every night, somebody like you or our listeners, we'd ask them, hey, did you feel awe today? Right, here's the vast mystery. And they'd write about it. Uh, and we did that for two weeks. And what we found, I was shocked. I literally did not believe this. I recently retabulated the results. Um, they feel awe two to three times a week. You know, people are walking uh, and suddenly, you know, they see, uh, you know, a, a pattern of light in a, a garden um, that shifts with the wind, that has a sound, that brings memories to them. And they're like, wow, that was, that was cool. And that's all, right? Uh, so I hope one of the lessons of this book, and I took it really personally when I was in grief, um, where uh, is to go find everyday awe, right? To, you know, to look at it in walks, to ask your friends to tell awe stories, to listen to music. You know, once you know about awe and you remember how awe-inspiring music is, go back to that, right? Find it. Um, so it's around us to feel on a regular basis. It doesn't need uh, all those resources you talked about. I was very much struck in your story about going um, on uh, to the prison around restorative justice yeah. and hearing experiences, even in an environment where you'd think there'd be very limited capacity to find awe, the stories that that people told within that situation. So it's made me think about how I'm finding everyday awe, and I, I'd love to kind of wrap up in a little bit around um, how you would love to advise our listeners that they might also find everyday awe. I thought maybe we, before we dive into that, we could bring it to life with a few examples from the, those eight different ways of awe that you spoke yeah. about. Thank you. Um, and I guess being uh, the Royal Society of Arts, I'd love to hear how art and culture um play into having a role in expressing and archiving and accessing awe and why is culture such a significant aspect of our relationship with awe this you know um notion uh came in uh from you know both my childhood um you know my dad was a visual artist and i just spent inordinate amounts of times as a five-year-old looking at paintings, looking at his paintings. He liked to paint in the style of uh, Goya uh, and kind of the horrors and awe of Go Goya. And then uh, Francis Bacon, the brilliant artist whom, you know, is stunning to me um, in, in the, during my childhood. And so I was just like, our visual art taught me so much about life, you know? And I, I write about and, and really in the sense of awe-inspiring epiphanies about the meaning of life. I remember, uh, and I write about this in the book, seeing de Hoek, uh, you know, Vermeer's contemporary who predates the Vermeer, doesn't get the credit, but I actually like him better. And, uh, and not that that matters, but, you know, just seeing his paintings as a 15-year-old and the, those kind of Dutch you know, slowing down of time and the everyday sublime. I was just, I mean, I still see those paintings right now. Uh, so visual art gets to awe um, for me personally. And then there's, you know, there's the thinking today is that 
we create culture and culture is always evolving and it's the most sophisticated in some sense cultural evolutionary product that humans create and one of the the reasons we do this is to, to share knowledge about what's meaningful in the world and all points us to what's meaningful in the world and so each culture archives the sublime and awe in different forms to help us share it together so when we all chant together, for example, in Bhutan, I was lucky enough to do that, as you chant these sacred sounds, those people are all reflecting on the ideas and the feelings together in, with those sounds. When we go, you know, when I was living in England in 1978 in Nottingham, and, and I first heard the Sex Pistols play God Save the Queen with all the young punkers back then, it was just like, that was all, it was like, Justice, you know, protest and, and the idea of justice. And then visual art, you know, points us to uh, the, the big ideas we should care about, about gender empowered. You all know that better than me. But what that tells us is that, that you know, the, you know, it's not that hard to find awe, just, just get, to, <laughs> get to forms of culture. You know, we just did a study soon to be published that, you know, when kids are in museums, and they get to feel awe, they become better citizens, right? They become kinder because of the cultural archiving of the power of emotions like awe. So it was one of the most exciting areas to dive into because it brings together the cultural archive hypothesis, recent archeology span and studies of Mesoamerican textiles. And why would de Hook be so powerful to me? What's the neuroscience of that? And it is about allowing us to grasp these big patterns of meaning in the world. I love what you just said there around all pointing to us, pointing out to us what is meaningful in the world. Yeah. Do you think that all then is a tool for the political as well as the personal? Oh my God, I, you know, I just lived through Trump <laughs> and his rallies were awe-inspiring for his his, his supporters, you know, historically so, the progressive community didn't anticipate or understand that. Um, awe is often manipulated, right? It is often commodified. It is often a tool of the powerful. And you think about the cult leaders like Charles Manson, you know, the mysticism of the cult leader. A lot of people are very worried about religion or skeptical of religion because it, it brings together all these capacities to elicit awe and it brings somebody in there who might be a you know ordinary citizen or in a different historical era a slave and pow you hit them with awe and they become subservient um, there is a lot of risk in awe but that's why you know and and also commodification frankly the you know there are long histories uh you know and this was one of my favorite books from the humanities on the the marvel rooms and the curiosity cabinets of the aristocracy, they would kind of collect all the awe-inspiring stuff of the world and put it in a one room in their giant mansion and show it off, right? And that's why I like, um, you know, this whole movement of Edmund Burke and Emerson and Margaret Fuller of like, let's, let's let everybody feel awe. Let's, let's get it into the public and make it uh, democratic. Building on that then, I was particularly <laughs> interested in, um, you talk a lot about awe at the individual level. Yeah. And do you have a view as to how this could be used at a system level? So building, I guess, around let everyone experience awe, 
you know, what would it look like if we were designed an education system, or you mentioned the kind of the, the, um, the hospitalization of death, and what if instead if we were to design that to be around awe, uh, do you think that's possible? Do you see examples of where that's being done? What a spectacular question, Anna, thank you. One of my hopes for this book is, you know, that it'll, you know, bring about a little social change. Uh, I'm, I'm excited or I am moved by the fact that experiences of awe make us friendlier to the environment. We eat less red meat, et cetera. So that's good news. And then there's this broader question. I'm a psychologist. I work on individual phenomena and also social, collect, a little bit collective phenomena. But what about institutional societal phenomena? Um, and it is astonishing to me. You know, there, there are two complementary observations here. One is humans instinctively create things that are awe-inspiring, right? That is just what we do. We build, you know, the Mayan, you know, pyramids and we design, you know, Mesoamerican textiles and we paint things and we, around the world, people have sacred sounds uh, that they, you can sing as a lullaby. So we build awe-inspiring stuff to make us better community members. And that's, we have, you know, festivals and, you know, you know, uh, farmers markets and the like. And then what strikes me, Anna, which is at, at the provocative heart of your question is we then take it out of institutions, right? And I don't know why. Um, we are working hard uh, at the Greater Good Science Center to make awe part of classrooms, you know, visually, the physical context of the classroom, how teachers ask questions, Instead of asking questions that point to an answer, you ask questions that open up mysteries, right? To getting kids to tell awe stories, et cetera. That's easy work to do. Um, I, a second institutional context is what you said. You know, when I watched my brother die, I was in hospitals of different kinds. And I remember two experiences in particular. He had to get this really complicated stomach surgery and he walked into, I walked him up into the surgery room and it was like going to a torture chamber. It, it looked like that, you know, barren tile, electrical stuff, you know, instruments. And then he, he had a, he almost died and I was with him in this emergency room and we walked around after he was in a coma and the hospitals, you know, bright lights, food, et cetera. It's obvious to critique it. That's easily imbued with awe to transform it with sounds and images and and you know contemplative practices and the like so i think there are huge opportunities for awe design you know architecture i've talked to people um, who are designing large-scale public housing where tens of thousands of people live let's build awe into it visually contextually um, I think there are principles to abide by to, to do some good work. That gives me a lot of hope because, um, you know, we, we are designing here at BRSA a future that is more regenerative, <clears throat> restorative, rebalanced. And I feel awe is one of the key capabilities of building that world. Is there something that you think we can be doing as a global collective to, to foster or as a practice? Yeah, you know, over here in the United States, over here in the United States, people always, you know, oh, that's, you know how utilitarian we are. We're like, 
well, all is wonderful, good for you. What can I do about it? You know, and, and we are, you know, uh, uh, just, you know, just pathologically oriented in that way. But it is, you know, it also has an upside to it, which is what can I do for all? What can I, how can I feel it? And, you know, Anna, actually, you know, we have been developing at the Greater Good Science Center, ggia.berkeley.edu, free practices around awe. And what I'd remind people of, this is obvious to this audience, is culture has thousands of years of awe <laughs> at your fingertips. I work with Google Arts and Culture, you know, there's just tons of imagery, sounds, and, and orient to awe within culture, sacred texts, contemplative practices. But we've designed more, you know, everyday practices. We've developed an awe walk. Once a week, you can go out. We're all walking more thanks to the pandemic. Go out and, um, and go someplace that you're curious about. Approach it with childlike wonder. Uh, go somewhere that's a little mysterious, right? So we have awe walks. I did a lot of work in hospitals during the pandemic. One of the things I did with small groups that you can do with any organization, as I say, um, take a moment and, and I, I ask this of our audience, like think about a moment of awe at work and let's all share awe stories. And the stories you hear are incredible. Um, you know, you can, um, you know, you can orient to nature. There are all kinds of, one of my other favorite practices is to have people reflect on in the spirit of moral beauty, the deepest source of awe around the world is who is an everyday person who is a source of moral beauty for you, right? Who, whose kindness may have moved you to get goosebumps or tear up a little. And, and people, and then tell those stories with some friends, right? And suddenly you're like, my grandmother, uh, oh, that neighbor, what they do. Um, so there's a lot we can do with this, this ineffable emotion to bring it into our everyday lives. I love that. I think you quoted Toni Morrison giving goodness its own language. And that was definitely uh, of the eight uh, kind of different ways of expressing or finding awe. That one really personally resonated with me. And I think we see a lot of brilliant people doing great work in the world. And that is continually a source of awe. Um, I wondered if we can, uh, before we end, just hear maybe some of your favorite stories of awe, and they can be personal, or you've spoken to so, so many people that have contributed to this book. Are there any particular stories that you'd love to share with our listeners? Yeah, you know, I hope, um, you know, one of the challenges, very daunting, and then you know, epiphanies of writing this book for me was I felt that the science couldn't quite capture the real deep meaning of awe, you know, in the moment and then it how it changes your life. And in this period of grief, I just thought, okay, I gotta go talk to people um, who, who, for whom awe has transformed their, their being in the world, right? Uh, I, I, understanding how awe elicits music is really hard. I mean, how music elicits awe. It's a really complicated question scientifically. And so I interviewed Yumi Kendall, a cellist, and she had this kind of uh, powerful relationship with her grandfather and uh, he, he died and, and she had this rush of emotion of awe. 
playing music that he liked. She was a cellist for the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Orchestra. And she said, you know, uh, music is a cashmere blanket of sound. And I was like, yeah, that's it, right? Um, Stacy Bear uh, was a veteran or is a veteran, big guy. And he was just blown off the map by his service in Iraq, uh, came back, was suicidal, drug addicted. Uh, he's a friend and I've talked extensively with him, worked with him. He was out rock climbing in Colorado and had this, he just starts sobbing, you know, and had this, and, and this, this phrase came to him, which sounds a little bit like Ralph Waldo Emerson that get outside. And he just, it transformed him. He was going to commit suicide. And he ended up creating programs that have gotten hundreds of thousands of people outdoors that we've studied. Um, and then, you know, to return to my work in the prisons, you know, I don't know why, but I, I gravitated in there and um, met Lewis Scott, who's in there for life. He did really tough stuff. Uh, it is hard in there, in prison. These guys, in the United States, it, you know, the people who have landed in prison have been traumatized in every way, you know, and, and you can't even imagine the trauma they feel. And Lewis was like, all I want to do is do stuff for kindness and justice, podcasts and newspapers and restorative justice. And just hearing him and seeing him bring kindness to these guys living in cells 22 hours a day, uh, it changed my life, right? So, so that's what I love about awe is it's this lens that, that allows you as an individual to tap into these universal sources of meaning. Uh, and for me, it, it, it was those three people's stories that uh, really helped me find meaning uh, during a complicated time. Those beautiful, beautiful stories. Um, and where, where next for you, Daha? What are you taking? Oh. Uh, where are you taking or? Yeah. Or, or, or maybe moving on? Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with all. You know, I gave it three years. Um, yeah, there, there are several things I'm interested in, you know. I've been lucky enough in my career to, to be out in the world and help with prisons or hospitals and schools. And so I'll do a lot of awe design work. I'm very interested in that and interested in further conversations with you, Anna, about awe is about regeneration. Uh, I, I feel destabilized by the vast mystery and I create new things. So make awe an animating concept in that kind of work. Um, you know, Scholarship-wise, uh, awe, and I write about this in the book, and for very interested listeners, they should Google Alan Cowan, who's this computational scientist I've worked with, and, and Eftihia Stamku. We have a, a new study on, on the meaning of paintings. Awe is part of what we call a self-transcendent space. And it's not only awe, but it's beauty and absorption and bliss and ecstasy and joy and humor, the absurd, right? It's almost like all of life is absurd. That's a fascinating realm of emotion to study scientifically. And then, you know, personally, um, we'll see how this manifests, but, um, you know, in the West, in many parts of the West, we just don't handle death well. Uh, they approach it much differently. I was just in Bhutan for a documentary with National Geographic, they do it much differently there, right? It's just part of our 
approach to life. And I'm very interested in uh, grief and, and how we can humanize the end of life. So there's a lot of good work coming out of awe and perhaps I'll be in conversation with your community. We would very, very much enjoy that. Um, well, I think that's a lovely note to end it on. And um, it's been an absolutely wonderful discussion. So Daha, thank you. It's been so great to speak with you. And again, really, really grateful that you've taken the time to come and, and speak with us today. Uh, your book, All the Transformative Power of Everyday Wonder is out now. The RSA have provided a discount code for anyone buying the book through FOILS. And the code is FOILS RSA 20. Uh, both the code and a link to the book will be appearing in the live chat as I speak. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to watch and thank you to the RSA for hosting this event. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the RSA and how to get involved in our global fellowship community, you can visit thersa.org. Uh, thank you everyone for watching and see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations. 